Hey everybody, welcome back to my podcast, Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit. This is your host, Dr. Steve Sullivan, coming to you from the suburbs of Philadelphia, where I teach anatomy and physiology at Bucks County Community College. Today we're getting into balance and equilibrium, which I'm just going to refer to as equilibrium from here on out. And this is another sensation that the sense organs are in the ear. So just like hearing had the cochlea, the equilibrium component is called the vestibular apparatus. And it is in the inner ear, and it uses waves of endolymph stimulating hair cells just like the cochlea did for hearing. So we're going to continue on with the ear, and that's going to finish up our talk about sensation. So we've had a few episodes on sensation, and that was just a piece of the entire nervous system. And now we're going to be done with sensation and the nervous system. So in the next episode, we'll move on to the endocrine system from here. So we're going to talk about equilibrium, which is kind of how we know our body's position in space and whether or not we're moving, what direction we're moving in, and how fast we're moving. So mostly that's taking place in our head. So we're looking at the movement of our head and the position of our head, and then we're using our other sensations like proprioceptors in our muscles and joints and tendons, and we're using all of those to then relate that movement to our entire body. So this is a really important sensation because it allows us to make a lot of adjustments to make sure that we maintain our posture, We stay upright, we stay still if we want to stay still, we move if we want to move, and we move in the right direction and at the right speed we want to move. And that's all because we have this sense organ that gives us the situation at hand first, right? I often tell my students that if you want to give someone directions to your house, the first thing you need to know is where are they now? Because how are you going to tell them where to get somewhere if you don't know where they're starting? And the vestibular apparatus telling us about the equilibrium of our bodies tells us where we're starting, right? So if you need to make a correction, if you trip and you fall and you need to catch yourself, you need to know what direction you're falling, how fast you're falling. Uh, Those are all important things. If you want to get moving somewhere, move in a certain direction, you need to know what position your body is to start. So that's what equilibrium is, and we're going to spend some time on that in this episode. But first... I have a guest today. I have a very special guest today who is a friend of mine for a few years now, sometime, I mean, since long before COVID. So it's it's been quite a few years that I have been friends with Dr. Kathy Burleson from Hamlin University in Minnesota in the United States. We met through our professional society, the Human A&P Society, which I'll talk about later. And we had a conversation today about diversity, equity, and inclusion in anatomy and physiology. She did a great presentation last year at our national conference talking about how our textbooks are organized and whether or not they're adequately addressing the entire population. And so I was really interested in that information and in the data that she presented, and I'm also interested in the response from the authors of the textbooks, because I think this is an important topic. We have Students from all over, from all backgrounds, all abilities, all races, all religions, all genders, and we need to make sure that we are serving the entire population of people who need to be served by anatomy and physiology instructors. So uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation that I had with Dr. Burleson. I know I did. We're going to get started with equilibrium right after that. But first, 
let's take a listen to my conversation with Dr. Kathy Burleson of Hamlin University. Okay, thank you for joining us, Dr. Kathy Burleson. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate having you here. Glad to be here. So, Kathy, you and I have known each other for a few years because of the Human Anatomy and Physiology Society, and you teach at Hamline University in St. Paul, Minnesota, right? Yes. Yep. So, is that is this a, a big university? Is it a small university? What kind of students are you looking at there? Uh, it's fairly small. We have probably this year about seventeen hundred undergrads. Um, it's it's been up in the two thousands when we, when I first started, but it's been shrinking a little bit um, with everything going on. Um, so, um, not we have some grad programs there, but none of them in like the sciences. Mostly focused on um, creative writing and business and things like that. So mostly undergraduates. Okay. Um, the students who take your class, uh, your anatomy and physiology class, what are they usually looking to go into? Yeah, it's a mix of exercise science students who need to take it for their major, and then a lot of pre-health students who need it as a prereq for applying for graduate programs. Okay. So it's it's usually a, a mix of like about half and half of those students. So uh, a few years ago, you had founded and became the chair of a new committee at the Human Anatomy and Physiology Society, which is our professional organization, um, on diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's a topic that I'm concerned with, and uh, and I think that that all schools and all professions need to be looking at their DEI. And um, and so I'm kind of wondering if you could just share a little bit about, about that and, and what sparked your interest and made you think that HAPS would benefit from this committee? Yeah, so, I mean, it's definitely a topic that I've been interested in since I started teaching about 15 years ago. And um, I teach a lot of non-major human biology classes in addition to anatomy and physiology. So for me, helping students understand how science and society intersect is really important. And so naturally, a lot of diversity and inclusion topics can come up um, in those classes. And so um, as I started, as we developed anatomy and physiology on our campus um, and started thinking about how to include that kind of topic in A&P, um, I started thinking about where that might show up at HAPS too. And so, um, I mean, there's there's just so many, there's just so much I could go, go into here. Um, just the underrepresentation nationally in STEM across all different kinds of biomedical fields and health sciences. Um, trying to think about how do I make my students feel like they belong in STEM and what kinds of things I could be doing in my classroom to help with that process. Um, looking at textbooks and the diversity of images and examples there and seeing how that impacts student retention and our understanding of human body functions and disease. Um, so there's, I mean, there's lots of different places where it intersected with my my teaching and then also um, I've been involved in a lot of diversity work on my campus and so a lot of the service work that I was doing at Hamlin um, was something that I could see also being helpful at HAPS for a lot of our, our colleagues there. That's great. I mean, I, I think that that's a really important thing to look at, especially in anatomy and physiology, we tend to, we tend to teach to the, to the average person. Right. So mm -hmm. um, especially when we look at examples of things that are happening in the human body and a lot of times they're not necessarily um, they don't necessarily apply to everyone. I think a lot about um, 
when we talk about discoloration and things like that, that, that happen with certain conditions, that discoloration is not going to be the same for everybody. And, uh, and I think that sometimes we don't, we don't see that. Also, thank you for pronouncing Hamlin because I think I pronounced it Hamline and, um, I'm glad to know how to correctly pronounce the name of your university. You mentioned um, things that you can do in the classroom and things that your college can do um, to address diversity and equity and inclusion. What are some things that you came up with? Usually for most topics, when we're talking about any organ system, I try to think about what are some like sociocultural experiences that might impact the human experience. So you know, if we're talking about digestion, I can talk to students about all the organs in the organ system and how they work, um, but then we can talk about you know, what kind of social issues are connected to digestion and nutrition. And so you know, access to foods or eating disorders or things like that. So pretty much for every, every organ system of the body, I've tried to investigate um, things that are not necessarily genetic or anatomical or physiological that can be impacted by other experiences people are having and how that can have an impact on human health. And so um, I, I mostly teach um, anatomy and physiology one. So this year, this is the first time that I had to embed a diversity gen ed um, designation on the course. Um, all of our majors on campus starting this year had to have at least one one course in the major that offered a diversity credit. And so I put it in anatomy and physiology for exercise science. So for each unit, I had to um, find topics that were relevant to diversity and inclusion um, when it came to those those particular organ systems. So skin, it was fairly easy to talk about skin color. I think that one um, a lot of people can relate to, but we also talked about obesity and the impacts on the body and the socio, um, psych the psychological, psychosocial types of Im impacts it has on people and how they're treated. Um, and kind of going along like that for the other organ systems. That's, that's really interesting. And that, that actually made me think of something because around the country and the world, food insecurity is a big issue, especially among college students. And mm -hmm. you had mentioned access to food. And, and I know that, that where, where I am in, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, I'm very close to Philadelphia, very close to Trenton, New Jersey. And um, I hear the term food desert a lot. And, and people who might be our students who live in areas where the nutrition they have access to ne not, isn't necessarily what we might expect or what we mm -hmm. might be teaching to or using as the quote unquote normal and average healthy adult, right? So um, I'm, I'm like, I like that you, that you address that. Just to, just to throw back a quick little story, a, a few episodes ago, um, I covered smell and taste and my guest was a chef in Oakland, California. And um, we talked about how he builds a menu on flavor profiles and smells and tastes and even vision and mouthfeel and all those things. But we also talked about a program that he runs. It's an organization called Community Kitchens in Oakland that started dealing with food insecurity during the pandemic and he's kept it going. And it's, it's really an amazing program um, that uh, I was really happy to learn about that just, just kind of reminded me of a previous episode. So you had also talked about last year when we were in um, Albuquerque, New Mexico for our national conference for HAPS, 
you did a presentation that I really enjoyed. You looked at a lot of the A&P textbooks and you were talking about what was represented or who was represented in the textbooks. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah, it was a, it's a project I've been working on for, oh my gosh, so many years now, seven years or more. Um, I finally just got students to, to carry out the research in 2021, but um, it started when I was teaching biology of women, which is a, it's basically human biology, but focused on like women's uh, lens of women's experiences and women's bodies. And I was having a lot of trouble finding uh, organ system pictures of women's bodies, especially the muscular system. That's where I started. I, I just wanted to show the musculature of a female body and I couldn't find anything online at all. I went through Google image search and all I came up with were either male bodies or really provocative or uh, sexualized images of women's bodies where they'd be bending in weird positions and um, had breast tissue and just it, they were, none of them were appropriate to put up in my class. And so it made me start wondering if, if it was just that organ system that um, I couldn't find a woman's body or if other organ systems would have that same pattern. So I started looking at different textbooks and I chose I chose to focus specifically on anatomy and physiology combined textbooks because that's the textbook that I was using. And so I had seven different um, very popular um, textbooks in the field that I compared to see how, um, how well do the textbooks represent sex, race, age, body size, and disability, and across all the different organ systems across the books. Um, and so that was the that was the work that I presented at HAPS last year. And so what we found was that um, while there's a fairly equal uh, balance in representation of sex, so the male and female bodies across the textbooks, um, almost all the textbooks were like younger, younger bodies, so like 20s to 40s. Um, almost all of them, almost all the images in the textbooks portrayed people of average weight. So there was very little examples of overweight or underweight bodies. And when those were showed, they typically were for diseases. Um, there were very few images of people with disabilities and there was um, the age range as usual, I think I already said that like 20 to 40. Um, and oh, for race, it was it was still primarily white. Um, they, there has been, there ha I guess kind of look, looking by book, some books might have a little bit more diversity in terms of, of race or of sex than others, but the other categories are pretty, pretty uh, much the same across all the books. Interesting. So I remember that presentation. I was I was there, and and there was also I think if I remember correctly several of the authors of the books that you had used in your research were also present. Yes, and their editors or publisher, people from the from the companies. Right. So so could you tell me what their reaction was? Yeah, I, I think I knew what the reaction of most of them was. Um, I had, like I said, there are seven different books we looked at and um, the students that I did research with that summer, actually two students, um, one was Kim Trung and the other was Sydney Larson, but Kim was, um, one of her jobs besides doing coding of textbook images was also to interview textbook authors with me and have conversations with them about the types of decision-making processes that influence textbooks, um, like diversity of the images, how do you choose an image, what's the process like? And so 
um, we, we talked to most of the authors for about 45 minutes. And so um, five of the seven textbooks, I had been able to have um, conversations with, with the author, uh, at least one of the authors, and then in some cases, illustrators from those textbooks. And so they were all very interested in what our data would be. And so um, after Kim and I interviewed them and we actually had the data from our summer research, we shared it with the author so that they would know um, what we found. And I feel like I've stayed in touch with a lot of them over time. So as they come up with new additions, they've sent us their new one and said, we'd love to see how we've done, you know, since to, since our last edition. And so uh, no one was surprised by what I found because they'd already kind of seen the data and talked to me about it ahead of time. And I don't think the data surprised anybody when we gave it to them either. I think um, the patterns that we saw were things that most of them had recognized themselves. Yeah, I love that they had a positive response and reaction and want to do better uh, based on the data that you had that you had found that that's that's I mean that's what you'd hope to expect right that's what you you would hope to see uh, I know that um, recently I had finished up the the uh, reproductive and human development units for the project that I work on and um, and I would say within three weeks of me submitting that content I got an email from my editor saying uh, saying I should have I should have given you this a couple of months ago, but these are our DEI guidelines for for language and um, so many of it applied to what I had just submitted them and um, and I like to think of myself as really sensitive to that and um, but there was still a lot of language that I had to go back in and change and and um, and rightly so I was happy to do it because they just had better ways better ways to use terminology in terms of, especially when it comes to uh, gender and sex and, and things like that, because there's just, it's just not as cut and dry as, as people would have liked to think a few, uh, you know, decades ago. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that the authors were, were responsive because I feel like we should all kind of be striving to, to uh, meet our students where they are and to serve the entire population. The research that I'm doing is still ongoing. So we did get three new editions of the textbooks that we reviewed in 2021. And the data is just starting to come out from um, my, my faculty collaborator on that. Um, and so we are seeing some improvements in certain areas of um, representation in textbooks. And I guess what it's really exciting to me is the authors are authors are really <laughs> have a lot of um, influence on making changes in the field. And so I've been really excited lately just to have conversations like this with you and with others, because um, I feel like we actually could make a meaningful impact in anatomy and physiology, um, either through HAPS or through textbooks or in our classrooms um, by having these conversations in general. Kathy, once again, thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, your time. You've been very generous with it. And I think that this is gonna be something that um, the listeners are going to be super interested in because I know I was and uh, hopefully they share my interests. Well, thank you for having me. I could talk about uh, this all day. <laughs> oh, I appreciate it. And, um, and I'll probably see you in St. Louis uh, for the next HAPS conference. And then maybe we'll, we'll get a chance to talk about this in more detail. Yes. Right. Happy holidays. You too. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Kathy Burleson from Hamlin University in Minnesota. 
I really loved that conversation. I especially liked hearing how receptive the authors were to changing what they have and making sure that they're sensitive to the diversity of our population and including everyone and being equitable in the way that they write their content. I think we need to really recognize how many different people from different backgrounds, different genders, different races, different religions, etc., you name it, are taking our courses. And I think it's really important that we respect that diversity and that we strive toward diversity, equity, and inclusion in our practice. Having said that, I think it's time to get into the content of Equilibrium, so let's get at it. In order to maintain balance, we need to monitor and be aware of the position of our head and whether or not it's moving. This sensation is what we call equilibrium. The inner ear is associated with both hearing and equilibrium, but they don't use all the same anatomical structures. Remember that the sense organ for hearing is the cochlea. For equilibrium, we use the vestibular apparatus. So let's talk a little bit about the anatomy inside the temporal bone that is part of the ear. So within those margins of the temporal bone, like carved out inside the temporal bone, is a maze-like chamber called the bony labyrinth. And inside that hard bony labyrinth, and taking the same shape, are soft, fluid-filled membranous canals called the membranous labyrinth. It's kind of like a rubber tire and the tire tube inside of it. The bony labyrinth consists of the cochlea, the semicircular canals, and a vestibule between the two. For equilibrium, the membranous labyrinth is the semicircular ducts inside the semicircular canals and structures called the utricle and saccule, which are inside the vestibule. There are three different semicircular ducts, and each of them are arranged to respond to movement in a different plane. There's an anterior, there's a posterior, and there's a lateral semicircular duct. The anterior and posterior are arranged vertically, making a 90-degree angle with each other. The lateral is about 30 degrees from being flat on the horizontal plane. This orientation helps us determine what angular direction our head is moving in. The sensory receptors that are inside these structures are collectively called the vestibular apparatus. Maintaining balance of our body also utilizes visual input and sensory information from the proprioceptors of our muscles and joints. So it's not just the vestibular apparatus that participates in this particular sensation. So it's not just the vestibular apparatus that keeps us balanced and where we wanna be. We also have to utilize other sensations and the brain is gonna integrate all of the data that help keep us balanced. So when we wanna contract the muscles, that hold us upright or that move us, they're using the sensory data that's coming from all of those places. So there's two types of equilibrium, static and dynamic. Static equilibrium monitors the position of your head in space. This is how we know if we're upright, lying down, on our left, or on our right. Dynamic equilibrium tells us if we're moving and how fast we're accelerating. And there's two types of acceleration that we're monitoring, linear and angular. Linear is the movement in a straight line. It doesn't matter which plane that line is in. It could be moving forward or backward, like you're riding a bicycle down the street. It could be side to side, like you're sitting on a bus, but you're facing the window. 
or it could be up and down like you're in an elevator. Angular acceleration is rotational movement. This is like now you're riding your bicycle, but you're turning onto another street, right? You're making a rotational movement of your head by turning. It could also be like a really tight rotational movement, like you're in a carnival ride that spins, like a tilt-a-whirl or a teacup-type ride. Or think about a figure skater doing a tight spin. That's all rotational movement. The utricle and the saccule are responsible for static equilibrium and linear acceleration. The semicircular ducts are responsible for angular acceleration. So let's talk about the sense organs in the utricle and saccule. Each of these has a structure called the macula, which is a region of hair cells which serve as the sensory receptors and the supporting cells of the sense organ. The utricle's macula is called the macula utriculi, and it's arranged in a horizontal position. The macula in the saccule is called the macula sacculi, and it's arranged vertically. Now let's think about these actual sense organs and the hair cells. Each hair cell consists of a hair bundle extending off the apical surface of the cell. A hair bundle has up to 70 stereocilia and one kinocilium. Now here's the interesting thing. The kinocilium is a true cilium. It's composed of microtubules, whereas a stereocilium is composed of actin and lacks microtubules. In fact, stereocilia are actually more like microvilli than they are like cilia. Each macula is covered with a gelatinous structure called the otolithic membrane. The stereocilia and the kinocilia are embedded within that membrane. And also within that otolithic membrane are what's called otoliths, which are small granules made of protein and calcium carbonate, and they give a little weight to it. When the head is upright, so are the stereocilia of the hair cells, and that limits their stimulation. That limited stimulation lets the brain know that the head is in the neutral position. When your head tilts, as if you're looking at your phone or up at the ceiling, gravity pulls the top of the otolithic membrane accordingly in that direction, bending the stereocilia with it. When the stereocilia bend toward the kinocilium, mechanically gated ion channels open and depolarize the membrane of the hair cell. The hair cell is a separate cell. Remember when we talked about receptors, that means a receptor potential is created and if it's strong enough, it will result in the release of neurotransmitter that's going to go into a synapse with the vestibular nerve. Now think about the vestibular nerve. This is a branch of the vestibulocochlear nerve. If you remember back when we talked about cranial nerves, cranial nerve eight is the vestibulocochlear nerve. It is two nerves bound together, the cochlear nerve for hearing and the vestibular nerve for equilibrium. So when the stereocilia bend away from the kinocilium, the mechanically gated ion channels close, allowing the membrane to repolarize, ending the nerve signal. The macula utriculi and sacculi work this way, but are oriented in different planes. That's going to be how we can tell which direction our head is tilting in. We also can tell because different hair bundles within each macula are oriented in different directions. So tilting the head forward stimulates some hair cells, and tilting it backward stimulates others, while tilting it to the side stimulates even others. 
the combination of hair cells that are being stimulated from each macula from both ears results in a variation of nerve signals arriving at the brain. And the brain will analyze all of those nerve signals plus sensory input from the eyes and the proprioceptors of your muscles and tendons and joint capsules. And that will allow the brain to perceive the actual position of the head. The maculae of the utricle and saccule also respond to linear movement and acceleration. The macula saccule responds to movement in the vertical plane, like jumping up and down or riding in an elevator. The macula utriculi responds to forward, backward, and lateral movements. So what's going to happen is that inertia is going to hold the otolithic membranes in place when we're not moving. If we start moving, inertia causes that otolithic membrane to lag behind and bend the stereocilia. When we stop moving, the otolithic membrane keeps moving a bit, bending the stereocilia again. The nerve signals created alert the brain to whether or not we're moving, how fast, and in what direction. Okay, so now let's talk about angular movement, which is in the semicircular ducts. They're filled with endolymph and have an expanded region near the utricle called the ampulla. The receptor organ in that ampulla is called the crista ampullaris, and it's similar to the macula. It has hair cells with stereocilia and echinocilium, but rather than an otolithic membrane, the crista ampullaris has a cupula, which is also a gelatinous structure. However, it's shaped like a bell instead of being flat, and it has no otoliths. When our head rotates or turns, inertia causes the endolymph in the semicircular ducts to lag behind as it stays put. The cupula bends as it's pushed into the lagging endolymph, bending the stereocilia with it and creating a receptor potential in the hair cells that will lead to a nerve signal in the vestibular nerve. The combination of hair cells coming from three different semicircular ducts arranged in three different planes allows the brain to perceive the angular motion, its direction, and how quickly it's happening. All right, so now that we know how the nerve signals are created for equilibrium, let's take a look at the projection pathway that they take to reach their central nervous system destination. The vestibular nerve merges with the cochlear nerve to form the cranial nerve 8, or the vestibulocochlear nerve like I mentioned earlier. Cranial nerve 8 has two vestibular nuclei in the brainstem. One is in the pons, and the other is in the medulla oblongata. Interneurons that cross the midline of the brainstem allow the vestibular nuclei from both ears to communicate and send signals to both sides of the brain, giving it the most data possible so it knows the precise status of equilibrium. So think about that. Not only do our ears hear things from both sides of our body, so your left ear hears and your right ear hears things from all around, we also send nerve signals across the midline so the left side of your brain gets nerve signals from the right ear and the left ear, and the right side of your brain gets nerve signals from the right ear and the left ear. So that way your brain can really take as much data as possible from these sense organs and give you a very precise perception of what is happening. So nerve signals from the vestibular nuclei travel to five different locations, helping them perform some of the major functions of equilibrium. So let's discuss all five and the functions that the vestibular data help them perform. All right, the first one is the cerebellum. So the cerebellum receives nerve signals from the vestibular apparatus, 
And they're going to help control the movements of our heads and eyes, our muscle tone, and also help control posture. Then there's the reticular formation, which we've talked about in other episodes. And this is also in the brainstem and the diencephalon. And those areas can respond to changes in posture by adjusting breathing and blood circulation. Now, notice that in response to losing your balance, your skeletal muscles will go into action to catch yourself so you don't fall. It doesn't always work, but we try. This is because nerve signals from the vestibular apparatus travel to the spinal cord and synapse with motor neurons that innervate the appropriate skeletal muscles. Now, think about that. That's a very reflexive movement. How are you going to know where to put your foot to prevent you from falling if you don't know what direction you're falling in, whether or not you're falling at all, and how fast you're falling. So that's how you know where to put your foot out or your hand out to catch yourself when you're falling. So think about any time that you've tripped or slipped on something and you either catch yourself with your foot or worse, you put your hand out and try to catch yourself with your hand, right? That is a reflexive movement, but often results in breaking your wrist. There is a type of fracture we sometimes call a foosh fracture, F-O-O-S-H, which stands for fall on outstretched hand. And it is the most common way to break your wrist. And that happens because it's simply a reflexive move to try to catch yourself. But we're not really strong enough to catch our full body weight falling to the ground. So often what you get is a broken wrist. Now, of course, like most sensory pathways, the thalamus receives nerve signals from the vestibular apparatus and relays them to multiple regions of the cerebral cortex. These are the parts of the central nervous system that make us consciously aware of our body's position in space, whether or not it's moving, and helps control the motor activity to the head and body to maintain our posture without us having to think about it too much. And finally, and this is one of my favorite aspects of it, nerve signals from the vestibular apparatus travel to the three cranial nerves that innervate the extrinsic muscles of the eyes. Remember that there are the oculomotor, trochlear, and abducens nerves as cranial nerves 3, 4, and 6, respectively. These cranial nerves innervate the extrinsic muscles of the eyes, the small, tiny muscles that move your eyeball so that you can focus on an object with very tiny movements. These are the areas of our body where we have the smallest motor units, so we have extreme fine control over these muscles. Now, also, with the vestibular apparatus, we've got reflexive actions to these muscles. And these reflexes exist to make sure your eyes can remain focused on an object even if your head is moving. So notice that if you're running, even though your body is moving quite a bit, everything in your visual field still looks still and stable. This is because the extrinsic muscles of your eyes are reflexively moving your eyes in the opposite direction that your head is moving to hold steady focus on your surroundings. This is called the vestibulo-ocular reflex. And having a stable view of the surroundings not only keeps objects in focus, but also helps us keep our balance in equilibrium. So think about how frustrating it is when you are trying to take a video with a phone or a camera and the video is real shaky. And that's because if you're moving, well, then the lens is moving. And that's going to make it seem like, relatively speaking, everything in the visual field of that lens is moving. Unless that lens is your cornea and the lens of your eye, 
and your eye has muscles that are holding your eyes steady on something you're focusing on, even though the rest of your body is moving. And that's why we can do that. Uh, that is pretty, pretty cool reflex, I think, uh, to have so that we can focus on something. There's actually a really interesting test you can do to see if this reflex is working. It's called the doll's eye test. And what you do is you have the subject or patient sitting down in front of you and you ask them to keep their focus on your nose and then with your hands, you rotate their head left and right like they're saying no. And what you're looking for is their ability to stay focused on your nose. Their eyes stay there on your nose while their head is rotating side to side. If they can't do that and their eyes just move with their head, kind of like what would happen if you did this with a doll, that is a positive test for an issue with the vestibular nerve or with the vestibular nuclei of the brainstem. So this would be part of a typical cranial nerve exam, which should be a part of a typical neurological exam. So this is kind of an interesting way to test this and to play with it yourself. So if you have someone who's willing to let you do that, give it a shot and watch that test. And you'll see that even though you move their head, their eyes can stay focused on something. All right, so that's a pretty good amount on equilibrium. Equilibrium is a really neat topic in sensation and about helping us you know, maintain the kind of balance we need just to make it through any day. I hope that this has helped you uh, kind of understand what's happening in your classes when you're studying equilibrium or if you were just curious and wanted to know how we keep our balance and how we remain focused on things even when we're running or jumping rope or anything like that. It's actually kind of neat. So once again, I want to thank my guest, Kathy Burleson. Dr. Burleson is at Hamlin University in St. Paul, Minnesota, which is the sister city of Minneapolis, Minnesota in the United States. Kathy and I have been friends for a few years now because we met through our professional society, the Human Anatomy and Physiology Society, which is an amazing organization. If you are really interested in any kind of resources or looking at some research or going to a conference, check out hapsweb.org. That is the website for the Human Anatomy and Physiology Society. I've been going to their national conferences since 2009. I've been an active member for about that long. Uh, it is an amazing community. And a couple of times a year, we get to learn from each other and see what each other is doing in the classroom and maybe also see some of the research that some of us are doing as anatomy and physiology professors. So once again, thank you to everyone who is listening. I really appreciate it. I hope that what you're getting out of this is going to help you get that beer better that you need in A&P. See you next time. Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit is a production of Minus 55 Media. Please take the time to rate the podcast, and don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Student Help for AP. That's Student Help, the number four, AP. There's a whole lot of tutor videos on there that I think you're going to find helpful. Special thanks to my family, Bucks County Community College, and McGraw-Hill Education, where you can find Anatomy and Physiology Digital Suite, my low-cost, tutor video-based digital learning solution for anatomy and physiology already being used at several colleges and universities.